I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. The Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast with open reach, building the broadband network that connects us all. Check for ultra-fast, ultra-reliable, full-fibre broadband at openreach.co.uk forward slash NI. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup with me, Gareth Hanna, this week are Jonathan Bradley. Hello. And Adam McKendrick. Hello. We'll be discussing Ulster Rugby's much-needed victory over the Cheetahs in Belfast, featuring, of course, Ryan Peener's long-awaited return to Belfast and, fittingly, a new scrum half signing for his old side. Albie Matheson has officially been announced as Ulster's new recruit, so we'll take a little look at what that means. And then on international duty, we've got a chastening defeat at Twickenham to pick three. I imagine both of you will have plenty to declare on that one. <laughs> Eddie Jones has since apologised for that <laughs> You would just like to clarify. Yeah. Um, I'm not even rising to that. We've got Schools Cup Rugby to look at as well, and plenty of your listener questions. But we'll begin at Kingspan Stadium on Saturday evening, where it finished Ulster 20, Cheetahs 10. First off, a certain Marcel Kutsia, once again, the star man. He was ridiculously good in a game, I suppose, where... In the middle of the Six Nations in the Pro 14, he's of a different standard to most of the opposition because most of the opposition that would be anywhere close to him are off playing international rugby. Yeah. So he stands out even more than he normally does. Like Bill Johnson had a really good game, but like giving man of the match to anybody not Marcel could see is just sharing it around at this <laughs> point. Like because just the turnovers that he's able to make with very similar to the one that we saw against Ospreys the week before, the way he gets over the ball, and even just, to be honest, the sound of some of the hits that he was making, <laughs> yeah. or like the the carries, like it was boys just bouncing off him and uh, skittling people out of the way, and like you could hear the thump, and I can't actually remember who the player was now that I think of it, but it was a big player, yeah. and he just got up so slowly and sort of shook his head and went back into the defensive line, because he had literally bounced three yards away from the carry just an absolutely ridiculous rugby player at this stage like he's getting better isn't he yeah like i think just the impact that he's been able to make the further he gets away from those knee injuries i'm really sort of pleased for him and for ulster because they're getting the player that they signed that for probably two years it looked like they weren't going to get because Mm -hmm. there was no guarantee that he was going to be able to come back to be at this level Mm-hmm. from those from injuries that were that serious and missing that many games over two years but yeah. I suppose it's a testament to the work that he did and the work that uh, the backroom team mm-hmm. did to get Absolutely. him back up to the level that he's at now which is genuinely I think world class Is it just me that after every performance like this there's a little bit of me that just goes that man should be a World Cup winner? Yeah that's hard to disagree with and I mean you look at that Springboks back row and you see the depth that they have there but you even think Marcel could add something to it which is a testament to how good he's been and you, you look at Ulster's forwards on on Saturday night and you look at Eric O'Sullivan Adam McBurney both coming up with positive yards per mm-hmm. carry and Nick Timoney also had positive yards per carry I thought he had a very underrated game on Saturday night but then you look at Marcel you know he, he had 35 meters on 22 carries and just every single time he's beating defenders four beaten defenders one offload just always being able to keep them mm-hmm. guessing this is exactly where Ulster wanted him to be the most impactful 
you know, you, you look at those games in the Champions Cup and that's where you probably want them to to be still a leader in the pack, but you want other guys stepping up. But it's whenever you play these games, whenever you're missing some of your other guys like Rob Herring, like Ian Henderson, Jack McGrath, you want Marcel to step up and be that real fulcrum of what you're trying to do uh, with your forward play. And he's done that. And it's it's just a real joy to watch him. You know, every time you get the ball or he gets the ball, you just know that there's the potential that he's going to sit someone down or he's going to make a really big carry. And I think whenever you've got that ability to just always make yards, it really drives the guys on around you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just one of those players that you sort of you pay to go and see, as the old saying goes. <laughs> yeah, well, but he really, he really genuinely is. Like I just imagine if you're not that into rugby. I think you could sort of tell somebody, like, this guy's worth going to see on his own. Yes, because if you're thinking about, you know, somebody coming to planet Earth and never having seen rugby before and being told, pick out the the best player in the pitch. Yeah. You know, that's why I say yeah. about the man of the match award being shared around. Yeah, because if no, you absolutely. to sit somebody down and be like, who didn't know the game and be like, who's making the biggest impact? It's the giant guy skittling yeah. people out of the yeah. way. It's a real shame in a way that what I think of is probably the end of the multiple star NIQ era in Ireland you know mm-hmm. we never saw him and Piatai and Pinar all playing together yeah. and I don't think Ulster or any Irish team will ever have again three non-Irish qualified players of that talent I'm sure there are days when Leskis sits back and wonders you know how different his Ulster tenure would have been if they had had those three players because mm-hmm. you at the same time because you can see just the massive, massive difference you can yeah. see it like makes Mar- to that side. Marcel's made 12 appearances this season and he's averaging just under 77 minutes per game. Like, he never had that under Les. Yeah. If you imagine the impact that he's having now, potentially taken and supplanted into, say, Les's second season in charge, I, I don't think it would have saved his job necessarily, but I certainly think you would have seen a, a much better mm-hmm. Ulster side than what they are now. Because, like, it's... It's fascinating in a way, and it's something that I had never really thought about too much, but Ian Henderson pointed it out to me one day when he didn't particularly agree with the premise of a question, that the difference between Ulster last season and then Les's last season, the Les-Jono split season, if you like, was like two wins in the league and beating Leicester compared to not beating Wasps. The difference in mood and the difference in direction, massive don't get me wrong, like Dan McFarland has completely yeah. turned the ship around in that way. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of like on-field results, the difference between what was considered a hugely successful season and what was considered Ulster's worst season ever mm-hmm. of the pro era. Now, obviously, there was an awful lot of other things going on. But purely on the field results, the difference was quite minimal, really. Mm-hmm. Another giant of a man in stature as much as anything else, Ryan Pinar was back in Belfast on Saturday night and, as expected, just got a great reception from everyone. As we all thought, I mean, he came out for warm-ups and the terrace started chanting ruin, 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 like he'd never left and that's what we expected and no doubt it was an emotional night for him, you know, coming back and playing somewhere where he's openly admitted he wanted to end his career, somewhere where he probably still considers to be home, you know, whenever he comes back, like he and his wife still have a house here, whenever he rocked up to talk to us on Tuesday he was driving a, a Range Rover that I assume is his and <laughs> isn't you know mm. some car he's uh, he's been given for the week so coming back to Ulster would have been massive for him and I think the reception that he got will have just reminded him how much he's respected here how mm. much of a of a club legend he is and 
you can see that just the aura and the presence around him hasn't changed since he left. You know, mm-hmm. we're now two and a half years since we actually saw him at Kingspan Stadium. But just the leadership that he has of that Cheetahs team is yeah. so impressive, given that he's only played for them for six, seven months. Yeah. So it, it was great to see him back. It's very clear that he's been through a very tough time recently, what with his, his sister passing and the struggles he had in Montpellier. But it's great to see him, you know, having a good time with the Cheetahs, win the Curry Cup with them. And, you know, whenever you consider everything that he did for Ulster to get that reception, well, it felt really good for him, I'm yeah. sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, his side, the Cheetahs, in a little while. But that performance from Ulster, performance and result, for the respective squads that were out, the Cheetahs fairly at full strength. Ulster very much not to get the win was uh, was very impressive indeed. I think it was definitely a sort of potential banana skin, if you like, just time. because of when it was played, the conditions it was played, and there was, as you say, the respective teams. Now we know that um, the Cheetahs aren't great away. Well, they're terrible away. But <laughs> <laughs> the only recent evidence we had of that was against Leinster. He make. Regardless of what team Leinster have, I make everybody look terrible. Yeah. So there was a danger coming into this fixture, but I suppose what impressed me the most, you know, looking at it, of you get what you expect to get from Marcel, as impressive mm-hmm. as it is to see, was the way that in those key positions where Ireland were missing internationals, the way that people stepped up. I thought James Hume was really, really good, mm-hmm. especially considering how long he's been out for. Yeah, Bill Johnson got the official man of the match award so if you're thinking about it you know that's stepping in for Stuart McCluskey and Billy Burns who are seen as two of Ulster's most important players yeah I'd you know it's so Adam McBurney into that mix stepping in for Rob Herring as well so where the spine of that team where Ulster were missing um key players the guys that came in stood up really well mm, yeah it's great as Johnny says to get James Hume and Michael Lowry as well back to sort of like two what are they probably 20 or 21 year olds and mm. with very promising careers ahead of them to see them back in action especially slotting back in so well was was a great bonus when you look at that back line you know you've got Bill Johnson who's 23 James Hume 21 Mike Lowry 21 Robert Balcoon 22 you know mm-hmm. that's a really young core of that back line especially whenever you have you know your 10 is 23 your 12 is 21 and Dave Shannon is someone who hasn't played that much rugby this season you know you're really entrusting a lot of responsibility onto three guys who haven't played a lot of rugby and haven't played a lot of rugby together mm-hmm. over their careers so for the connection that they had I thought that was really really impressive especially coming up against the Cheetahs backline that's so dangerous Ulster managed to limit them to two clean line breaks in the entire game which I think is absolutely outstanding given mm. you know even in the wet conditions and even away from home the cheetahs are still dangerous with ball in hand even if they're more dangerous at home and to limit them to two clean line breaks is outstanding defensive work mm. coming off a game against the Ospreys where Ulster were not at their best defensively to really shore up those deficiencies that they had in Swansea to be that good defensively against the Cheetahs, I thought was exceptional. And that's just, that's something that you really want to see continue. You know, mm-hmm. Hume coming back in and playing as if he was never injured. That yeah. fearlessness was incredible. Mike Larry being able to step in as a second receiver, having those two sort of dual 10 roles on the pitch mm-hmm. was really something that Ulster used to their advantage. One of the things that Bill Johnson said after the game was the Cheetahs were very up in their face 
very quickly and they needed to change something in the second half because he wasn't getting much time to work. So bringing Lowry into the line as that second 10, using the drop pass back to give him a bit more space was just something that worked a bit more. And you saw that for Ulster's second try because I can't remember who took the ball um, off the mall, but it was a drop pass back to Bill Johnson that allowed him to cross field kick for Balakoon to walk over in the corner. So I thought there was a maturity in that back line that completely belied their years. I was yeah. really impressed by just how they all clicked for mm. the lack of time and the lack of experience that they all have. We probably forgot. Not that we forgot, but it's just sort of obviously gone under the radar the last few months, the big careers that Hume and hopefully Lowry have, maybe particularly Hume. Yeah, I think especially when a player's injured in the position that they're playing, the player that's playing is playing so well. Yeah. The fact that they're injured, as you say, can go under the radar. So Stuart McCluskey's playing brilliantly, so there's never been a point where... And Stuart McCluskey's played so often, there's never been a point where people are like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have James yeah. Hume? Yeah. And the same just with the amount of backs, you know, mm-hmm. just how long Mike Lowry was out for. But like when you see James Hume, he's got so much quality and he makes space in a way that it doesn't look like it's there he'd actually done it a few times but the build-up to Tom O'Toole's try which was still very early in the game like you saw the space that he was able to create as you say he's a player that has a big big future Adam had the stats earlier just talking about the you know the youth of that back line and how many minutes Ulster have already entrusted into young players and that's with two of their brightest prospects out injured mm-hmm. so yeah, no, to see them kick on especially through this window it's disappointing that obviously with the cancellation that all oh, these young players that played well mm-hmm. aren't going to get the chance that they presumably would have got this week he throws Stuart Murray came in off the bench in that game and somebody else has had his injury problems into that mix and it's a, a really really exciting time I would say for the coaching staff to be able to bring those guys on Ulster's depth in the backs whenever you look at what they've got coming through is Ridiculous. Like, if you talk about Stuart McCluskey and Luke Marshall being your starting two centres, for sake of argument, you've then got James Hume, Angus Curtis, Stuart Murr, you've got Hayden Hyde, who's currently playing for the Ireland under 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got four players all under the age of 21 coming through, two of whom you would arguably say are ready to just, three of whom are arguably ready mm-hmm. to slot straight in if there's an injury to either McCluskey or Marshall or they're absent. And you look at the back three as well, you know, you even include Stockdale, who's still 23, but then you look at Rob Little, Robert Balakoon, Ethan McElroy, Connor Rankin in the academy, Iwan Hughes as well, or however you pronounce his first name. There's so much young talent in that back line for Ulster that you've got to start wondering mm-hmm. where are you going to find all the time for these guys? Because <laughs> if you manage to get them all to develop, these guys are all going to mm-hmm. be quality players, but it's finding time for all mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, so like Iron enough. Sexton and Nathan Doak are two players that yeah. are going to be coming through and we've already seen playing against professional mm-hmm. players for the A-side, mm-hmm. which is completely alien up until two years ago. Bill Johnson has um, a, a nice interview in today's paper, today Tuesday's uh, paper with you, Jonathan. Some interesting stuff on his views on sort of his, uh, his season so far with Ulster. Yeah, because like, post-match is always quite rushed. And people maybe don't realise because, as you say, it doesn't come out until the Tuesday from a Saturday game. But it's quite rushed and it can often be, it only really sort of scratches the surface most time of, you know, Mm. what went right, what went wrong, blah, blah, blah. Not particularly interesting. (laughs) I want to go home. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Can you finish up so I can go beer with my teammates sort of thing? Yeah. (laughs) Bill Johnson, the interviews that he's done with us so far, 
has always come across as quite um, talkative and quite thoughtful um, mm. about his own game and his own circumstance. So it was probably about 10 to 12 minutes, which you never get, <laughs> never, ever get post-match. And yeah, it was really good just talking about how, sort of admitting how he wasn't getting it at the start of the season, the switch in style of play from Munster to Ulster. And now mm. people have talked ad nauseum about the change in Munster's style this year and the changes with Larkham to try and, I suppose, play in more of an expansive way. But if you're a 10 of that age coming through in Munster, you're essentially look, looking to play, or people are looking at you to play in a 2005, 2006, 2008 type of Munster way where it's mm. like the pack are going to do the work and you just play, make sure we're in the right area type of thing, mm. which is not the way that Ulster are trying to play. And just talking about, I suppose, his own adjustment, how he was making mistakes at the start of the season, but also just rediscovering his appetite, I don't think is putting words in his mouth, of just how excited he was to get back after the break yeah. and how ready he was for it. We talked about it last week that we thought he was good off the bench against mm-hmm. Ospreys and then mm-hmm. better again against Cheetahs. So it's a really good thing to see from an Ulster perspective because the back up to 10 has been an issue for a long time like really Paddy Jackson coming through and Ian Humphreys the two different spells when you had both of them aside from those periods where they were both there the back up to 10 was a struggle so to be able to have him and Billy Burns Mm -hmm. is a huge hugely important hole in the squad Mm -hmm. filled really and his honesty was really refreshing as well you Mm -hmm. know some guys come up and they just say ah you know I've, I've been training away really hard but for him to actually open up and say you know I didn't get it for the first few mm. months, you know, that shows almost the maturity of him as well. Something, mm. you know, I was talking about earlier. I was very impressed with him. Yeah. There's a, a Cooney-esque so. element to his interviews. But one, one of the things about Johnson is he has only played twice with John Cooney. He's made, mm. well, six appearances this season. And only... Johnson? Um, sorry, uh, not six. Um, sorry, or... sorry, he's, he's made, a, he's made uh, 11 appearances five of which have been starts, mm-hmm. two of which have been with Cooney. So, you know, we're all talking about how Billy Burns has been so impressive, and he has been. He has been really good this season compared to, you know, how he started last season. But Bill Johnson hasn't gotten his chance to play alongside Cooney, who, whenever he's in the form he's in, makes things so much easier mm. for his fly half. Mm. So it'll just be really interesting to see if they can get Johnson a few games with Cooney, just see how he copes whenever he's got, you know, the form nine inside him. You've maybe got Stuart McCluskey outside him. Just see how he integrates to that system and see if he can take his game up that next level to play, you know, whenever he's got the guys alongside him that he'd be wanting to play with every week if he was mm-hmm. playing, say, Champions Cup rugby or uh, the big games in the Pro 14. Mm-hmm. It'd just be really interesting to see if he can take that step up. So we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, scrum half situation um, later on when we discuss our new signing. But um, for the next uh, 25 minutes, we're just going to talk about Robert Balakin. Because he's good. We're not really. But six tries in seven matches. It's, um, I mean, I, I don't want to keep going on about it, but it is pretty incredible. Yeah, and I think he actually had one of his quieter games on Saturday, but there were a couple of moments of real quality in it. And, you know, Adam touched on it earlier. He's, what, 22? And Stockdale's 23? Yeah. You know, you talk about all the players coming through. They could still be your wingers for 10 years, <laughs> you know, in the same way that, like, if Tommy Bow hadn't left, 
you would have had Tommy Bow and Andrew Trimble for so long. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really hard for anybody else to break in at that stage. You know, you look at somebody with the CV of Craig Gilroy, and Craig Gilroy's finding it hard to get in the 23 at the minute, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's such a bonus. In the same way that, you know, we've talked before about Dan Soper, and Dan Soper can be a... <laughs> someone that people look to from the club game and the schools game in a coaching sense to be like you know the talent is there but for Balakin to come from I suppose even just a county where Ulster haven't really had a lot of players for whatever well a long time but you know Jimmy McCoy really is the one that jumps off my head has been are we counting Will Addison <laughs> no <laughs> absolutely not and, well I'm sure I'm sure the people of Enniskillen do um, but you know for him to be able to come from where he's come from, from playing junior junior rugby, from playing sevens, he could be the poster boy for an awful lot of causes, basically. Mm-hmm. Looking for players from, I suppose, just who haven't starred in the school's cup, essentially, you know. It's just such a bonus to have a player come from nowhere like that. It's the same, you know, it's the same with um, Eric O'Sullivan last year. It makes, it makes such a difference to the squad to find these, I suppose, gems that you just weren't expecting. Well, one of the biggest things for me about finding players from areas like that is Ulster hosted that uh, open training session up in Letterkenny last year. And obviously, Joe Dunleavy's from there. And to see the kids, you know, rushing over to see Joe Dunleavy and mm-hmm. not, you know, Rory Best was there. Marcel Casillo was there. You know, and yet these kids mm-hmm. are rushing over to see Joe Dunleavy, the academy mm-hmm. back row who hasn't played a game for the Ulster senior team, yeah. but he's the local he's guy. There, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and you know the excitement for them to see one of their own playing for or training with Ulster was massive. Mm-hmm. And you look at the Enniskillen team that played Wallace in the mm-hmm. Schools Cup on Saturday. Yeah. You know Wallace are supposed to be one of the best teams in the Schools mm-hmm. Cup this year, but Enniskillen really put it up to them for and the entire seven, game. Seventeen of their twenty-three players were not an upper six. So it's a, a, a great crop coming through. Yeah, yeah. something like, going on in Robert, well, you look at the, you know, we talked before about the women's rugby in and how it seems like so much of the promising women's internationals now are coming from that part of the world. And you talk about maintaining that link in the schools cup, like Robert Balakin was there watching them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that he goes back to Enniskillen and watches the club at the weekends when yeah. he can. And it's, what, 90 miles? Is that 180 mm-hmm. miles yeah, around yeah. trip? Like, so, yeah, it's. It's a huge thing for rugby in the area, I suppose, yeah. as well. No, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, where to now? Well, we go to the end of season, or the hopes for the rest of the season, or Albie Matthewson for now. We'll go to Albie Matthewson for now, <laughs> will we? Dan McFarlane said today when his uh, signing was confirmed that uh, basically just he's going to be such a massive influence on all those young players coming through that we've, we've talked about. Probably the other side of it that people are going to be wondering about, Stuart Watson asks, is the signing of Albie Matthews a statement of Ulster's faith in Dave Shannon? So there are very much two sides to this. Obviously, he is going to be so important for the, the young guys coming up, the likes of your, your Stuart. But um, does this say something about um, where Ulster see Dave Shannon's position? I think you have to say that it does. Like I don't think you can sugarcoat it. Like He is mm. the backup nine for the past season and a half and they brought in somebody else. Now, Dave Shannon himself probably wouldn't say that he has the wealth of experience that uh, five times capped all-black scrum half <laughs> does, or somebody that's played for teams like Toulon. You know, he's played in, is it five different countries he's played in or something like that? So he comes with a wealth of knowledge, mm. and 
intellectual property that they can really tap into. I think that we spoke last week about Lewis Finley as somebody who was really really impressing us for the Irish under-20s. Obviously, we've talked about Nathan Doak a lot as well, more than we probably should for somebody that's still in school. It's that same Iron Sexton thing, you know, yeah. predicting that somebody's going to like be a starter for 10 years when they're still playing schools rugby, you know. <laughs> but you look at, the, I suppose, the knowledge that he has to pass on to those guys. And it's something that if you looked at the coach from Johan van Graan whenever he was leaving Munster in November, as good as a player he was, and, you know, by the end of his Munster tenure, he was seeing out important games rather than Conor Murray. And as good as a person, as Johan van Graan said, that he was mm-hmm. one of the best that he'd ever worked yeah. with. Something else that caught my eye that he said was just the work that he's done with all the young nines. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a huge part of why he's here, as well that's as, really. you know, the mm-hmm. minutes when John Cooney's not here. Would we be wrong to write off Dave Shanahan, though, because Abby Matthewson's here for one year. By the time he leaves, Dave Shanahan will be just turned 28. He's, he's hardly finished. So, like, considering the impact that Matthewson could then have, not just on the really young guys, but on Dave Shanahan as well, is there uh, life for him at all? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Like, we're, we're not saying that I'm just saying it's not a case of Matthews in so Shannon's looking for a job yeah, in the summer. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's enough, I suppose, minutes to go around. Shanahan maybe won't get the same amount of minutes as he wanted, but he wasn't getting the same amount of minutes as he wanted now because John Cooney was playing so yeah. often, you know? And as you say, at the end of this deal, Matthewson will be 35. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe he won't. <laughs> be looking for more than a one-year deal. Maybe the IRFU wouldn't sanction more than a one-year deal from. But at that stage, you've still got Nathan Duke one year out of school and Lewis mm. Finley, what, two years out mm. of school. So mm. sometimes I think there's a tendency to look to players and think that they can just step in at a very young age because people can look at the likes of Jacob Stockdale and the likes of James Ryan and be like, you know, they should be ready to play test rugby one year after playing um, under-20s rugby, but it doesn't always work like that. And you can probably damage a player by doing that Mm -hmm. and nobody's going to know better than the people that are working with them when they're ready. It's like, just to to use a completely off-topic example, it's like Troy Parrott at Spurs, who's (laughs) just turned 18 and I was like, why why is this guy not playing? And it's like, you can ruin a player by playing them when they're not ready. And it's the mm. people that see them every day and work with them every day that know. Mm-hmm. So there's no telling now whether those guys are going to be ready to yeah. play, yeah. you know, Pro 14 rugby or Champions Cup rugby in a year's time. Johnny yeah. and I are big baseball aficionados, and whenever a, a player is drafted out of high school, you know they don't go straight into the team's you know major league roster. They go mm. and play minor league baseball for a few years until they're ready. And I think Ulster will probably be looking at this as almost a Craig Casey situation where Matthewson has left Munster, but they've got Craig Casey pushing through, who has been playing quite well for them in the absence of Conor Murray. Mm-hmm. So if Ulster could get Matthewson in for a year, working with Finlay and potentially Doak, you know, if you can have Finlay almost ready to go once Matthewson leaves in exactly the same way that Casey was for Monster, then I think Matthewson has come in and done his job. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because he he will come in, he will be a quality backup to John Cooney. I don't think there's any doubt about Mm -hmm. that. You know, we've seen that um, from his performances with Monster, he is a completely adequate, if not fantastic, backup player to have to your starting nine. Mm -hmm. But if you come to the end of next season, 
if Lewis Finlay is ready to step in as that backup, I think Matthewson has done his job. Mm. And I think if Nathan Doak is coming up to somewhere where you know they're starting to think he might be ready to play for the senior team, I think then that's a bonus. Mm. But if it the the big thing for Ulster in the past is whenever they've brought in non Irish players is they haven't had someone to replace them straight afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. so you're looking at whenever Pinar left, Ulster immediately had to go out into the market and find yeah. someone else to come in because they didn't trust what they had was ready to step up and start in Pinar's well, well, absence. That, that was Pinar's fault. Was it Pinar's fault? No, I was being sarcastic. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Could but, this not have been Pinar coming in now? I think to be fair, the change in Ryan Pinar's family circumstances probably meant that he would always want to be in mm-hmm. South Africa now. I I understand why people would look at this and be like. Well, why would you not allow Pinar mm-hmm. to be an experienced backup yeah. two years ago, year and a half ago? Again, I've lost track of where we are in time. <laughs> but, um, the year after he left and he wasn't allowed to come back, you know, you could look at it and be like, well, why is that okay? But it's more of a change in, I think, the way that John Cooney's viewed because as great as John Cooney has mm-hmm. been for Ulster, it's worth remembering at this point that he didn't make the World Cup squad. The idea of John Cooney being away for... The first four games of the season, four games in the middle of the season, and four games in the spring. So missing half of Ulster's Pro 14 games essentially mm. is only really happened in February mm, when he yeah. like started to be in match day 23s for Ireland. Has it just very quickly before we move on? Has online criticism of Dave Shannon been a little bit over the top? That we're Ren there and I where you know hashtag be kind is going around Twitter and I saw Paul Williams put up on Twitter, you know, instead of tagging a player and saying how terrible they were, let's start a trend of tagging a player and saying how brilliant they were. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. It's something that I've never thought about, but I thought Mm -hmm. it was an absolutely brilliant initiative. Um, I don't tag players in anything because I don't ever want them to know what I'm saying about them, good (laughs) or bad. Yeah, (laughs) fair. Um, But yeah, I, I think the criticism of him has been over the top. He's not John Cooney. And the problem is people inherently expect that the guy who comes in and replaces him should be of a similar quality, if not the same quality. That's just not how it works. There is a depth chart almost for a reason. You know, players are of better quality than others. I don't think Dave Shannon has been anywhere near as bad as some people would have you believe. I thought he was actually quite good on Saturday. I thought him and Johnson worked quite well together. I thought, yeah, I thought he was decent. And then, like, the first, I think the first comment on our match report was that he was atrocious. Yeah. Which wasn't what I thought. Now, I know that there's people that will be listening thinking that we're far too high on Shanahan now that we've gone the other way. Mm. And I don't think it's that either. Like, look, there's no way to paint the signing of Matheson as a ringing endorsement for Mm. him. Yeah. Frankly. But it's not as bad, yeah, as Adam says, it's not as bad as people are making out. Far from it. And I can't remember whether we mentioned this last week in the podcast or not, but we talked about. The interview that we had in the paper with Stuart McCluskey yeah. talking about no player specifically, but the idea that people make their minds up on players after five games, and mm-hmm. that's always the case. And I think Saturday was a good example mm-hmm. of that because Shannon yeah. wasn't bad at all, but people are still coming away saying it's terrible. Johnny Sexton, for example, mm-hmm. World Player of the Year a year and a half ago, and some of the like things that Mike Ross had on his Twitter screenshotted yeah. of the comments aimed at Johnny Sexton mm-hmm. recently. And again, people tagging in him. Bizarre. Um, I think we said it a few weeks ago, like 
people are just meaner now than they ever have been before, frankly. Well, people people can hide behind anonymity yeah. on social media as well. You know, you don't have to put your name on social media. You don't have to even put a picture on social media. You can just say whatever you want and nobody actually has to know who you are. Mm. So there's that safety of people saying things online yeah. of, I can say what I want mm. and there will be no consequences to me. Unfortunately, and everything that's... I say comes under a byline. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, so. I would just be like, nice to use that uh, platform for just big positive. You know what? The, the best the best comments that Shannon will take will be Dan McFarland saying uh, after the game that you know you had Ruin Pinar and Tian Schumann mm. on the other side, uh, who are both infinitely more experienced mm. and would be considered better players than Dave Shannon and Bill Johnson. Mm. And of the two sets of halfbacks at the weekend you would have much rather had Dave Shannon yeah. and Bill Johnson's mm. performances. And that's, that's the best comments that you yeah. can get. Like, and I definitely enjoyed that turnover he won off the yeah, exactly. which was brilliant. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. thought it was brilliant. No, I do, I do feel for him because like, I think people think that sports when it's like part of the territory, uh-huh. which maybe criticism in general is, but when yeah. it's not reasoned and it's also being sent directly yeah. to them which I'm not sure if it is in Dave Shannon's case in anyway I was talking more about the sex, uh, yeah, the Saxon thing but yeah it's a weird thing to be at I would yeah. hopes for Ulster's season now obviously that result was uh, was so significant in the, the grand scheme of the table but if we look at the remainder of the fixtures Ulster are how many points ahead? they are 10? 7, seven points ahead, ahead of Glasgow, Glasgow 10 ahead of the Cheetahs of the Cheetahs so if we look at the rest of the fixtures, Ulster have four of their last nine games at home, including going to Connacht and Glasgow. Glasgow only have three of their last nine at home and go to Leinster, Munster and Ulster. So pretty difficult. But the Cheetahs have six of their last nine games at home and they also play the Kings away, which is, well not call it a home game, but it's not exactly away considering the rest of their, their trips. So how good basically do we think Cheetahs are going to be because it seems to me that the outcome of this season may be have a lot down to how successful the Cheetahs are in the remainder of their home games. There are three big home wins at the start of the season over Glasgow, Ulster and Munster were during the World Cup. Do we expect similar now not during World Cup time? It's very, very hard to tell because it's not just in the World Cup period that they've been very good going over the what three years that they've been in the league. They've been a good side at home because it's very hard for, I suppose, us to quantify just how difficult it is for visiting teams to play at that altitude. Well, I'll just interject here is, you know, like even just being there, you, yeah. can, you can feel the altitude, mm. like not not even playing, you can feel the altitude and yeah. like watch it, watching the guys even just during the captain's run, like you just know that they're feeling it. So the home advantage that the Cheetahs get yeah. is unbelievable. Like, and I think actually you you don't realise how good Ulster getting a draw there last season was until you know you see the results that they get against everyone else. So um I th- I think you you've gotta be approaching the end part of the season and I know Ulster say they don't like to do this, but I think you've gotta be approaching it as the Cheetahs are going to pick up at least points. <laughs> tw- tw- at least, you know, twenty at twenty nine points from their home games alone. And then you factor in going to the Kings, which should be at least another four, if not five. Mm-hmm. They should get a win at the Dragons. So yeah, you, you've got to be looking at the Cheetahs picking up another 40 points or so, yeah. which instantly puts them in the box seat for one of the two playoff spots. Mm-hmm. Because 
Ulster and Glasgow are going to take points off each other in the two yeah. games that they play against each other. Well, or f- fingers crossed, because well, <laughs> sorry, finger, fingers yeah. crossed. Glasgow are going to lose <laughs> or get no points from that. But you know that instantly puts the cheetahs back into the box seat from one of those two spots, and from there it's just about can Ulster get enough points to either get above them or stay ahead of Glasgow. So it's going to be tight. You look at some of those away fixtures that Ulster have, you know, Benetton are no easy team away. and Whenever that's played. And you're going to factor in, like, let, let's say the game does manage to get rescheduled for that March 15th date. We're not even sure that's possible mm. because of, you know, how serious the coronavirus is. Because but of that, the global pandemic. <laughs> why, all, why even bother talking about any of this? <laughs> but all of a sudden, Ulster are in a situation where if that game is rescheduled for then... And let's say, hypothetically, they do manage to beat Toulouse. You're suddenly back into another situation where you have 13 games in a row, roughly. I think it's actually 11 or 12. But you're suddenly into a situation where you have a massive string of games in a row. And unlike during the World Cup, where other teams are rotating players, you've got everyone else at full strength. And a few teams will have the breaks for the European weekends that you don't. Yeah, like so, if you can if you can't play that game in two weeks, which this is speculation on my part, but it seems like a stretch to think that they'll be able to play this in two weeks. Yeah. Like I understand that the the laws are in place, or the the measures are in place until the end of this weekend. But what is there to say that this problem is isn't going to exist in the weekend? Like I'd be surprised if the Six Nations isn't affected by this. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised. No, if the Pro 14 isn't more affected by this. And you're talking about then if Ulster, if the European Cup's something that we can still have with all the travel and mm. moving through, flying through quarantine zones that that might involve. If Ulster were to beat Toulouse, then there's just, there's no time to play that game. Like you're mm. looking at then having to play it midweek or something equally mm. crazy. If we put all that to the side <laughs> and we just assume that everything is going to be grand, then... Ulster have had the one slip up that I think they can probably afford mm. because you have to win your home games. And as Adam said, going to Edinburgh, going to Glasgow are games that you are probably going to lose. So you can't lose too many more after that, which means you have to beat good sides at home and not have the unexpected slip up that you don't see coming like happened against Ospreys because mm-hmm. the margin, like we flagged this early, like the margin for error was much smaller than people thought because of the buffer that Ulster have had and still have and you know we talked about it even last week as well like those four points that people expected them to get against Ospreys that they didn't could still loom large Mm -hmm. and then you're also talking about you know even say even if you finish third then how do people view the season if you finish third and go away say you go away in the quarterfinals not really quarterfinals but you know what I mean the round before the semifinals play in round yeah like (laughs) How do people view the season then? Mm-hmm. Because there's been, I think, a clear progression from last season of ideas and style and even mentality. But if the results aren't as good, then it's going to be interesting to see how people view the whole yeah. thing. And then, you know, to me, a successful season at this stage would still be getting to a semi-final and making more of a go of it. Because to win Silverware, you still have to beat Leinster. And I don't even think people within Ulster would claim that they're anything more than um, a puncher's chance in giving it a go against Leinster mm-hmm. in the same way that they did last year. Like Leinster are obviously a better team. So you still have that obstacle in both competitions. But because the semi-final went so badly last year, I do think that um, getting to a final would be a huge result and giving a better account of yourself in a semi-final would be progression. But when you look at the margins between 
now in the end of the season of how things can change given those fixtures like that's you know we were talking about it on Saturday night like this feels like the start of the run in in the Pro 14 mm-hmm. assuming yeah, it all goes ahead <laughs> that's, what, that's why Saturday's win was actually a lot better than I think a lot of people give credit for you know mm-hmm. denying the cheetahs a bonus point could uh, also be, be something that proves yeah. crucial which they nearly forgot the to do yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, what were they trying to do at the end? Like, I, I they didn't have, have a, no idea. they didn't have a bonus point to go for themselves. You know, yeah, just go try, just have, <laughs> just have fun, guys. You know, for the crowd's a bit fun. Very quickly, then Six Nations matters. We've just got a, a squad update through from the RFU that says that Will Addison will be continuing his rehab with Ulster this week, as opposed to in the Ireland camp. Anything we can read into about that? Nothing. I don't think you should be reading anything into what Ireland are doing with Will Addison because it's quite bizarre. Yeah. In the same way that it seemed quite bizarre last year. Of if he's not fit, what's he doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, why did yeah, they? You strange. know, they named him in a squad that he then didn't take part in in the last follow week. Mm. It's like if he's not fit to play, he's not fit to play. Yeah. yeah. England twenty four, Ireland twelve on uh, Sunday. Performance wise, not great. It's what my putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to throw it to Johnny here, giving it his out up, but no, yeah, it's. Um, I can't remember who it was said after the game, but someone put on Twitter that's the biggest twelve point hammering I've ever seen. Yeah. Neil Francis. Uh, Neil Francis. Yeah. Possibly um, a well, maybe disregarding last year's twelve point hammering in this competition <laughs> that Ireland got in this game. Never seen two yeah. um, two games that let you know less felt like a twelve point mm-hmm. loss. But I, ironically, you know, it's it's those two early tries that you know ultimately on the scoreboard have yeah. made the difference and the thing was Ireland were completely outplayed in that first half I mean I, I've never seen a team be so outplayed and not be uh, punished for it on the scoreboard like, it was incredible that they went in 17-0 down given how much better England were and given that Ireland had gifted them two tries like if you think about if they hadn't made those basic mistakes like I know it's butterfly effect theory and all that mm-hmm. but if they hadn't make, made those mistakes and Johnny Sexton had knocked over a penalty that he knocks over 97 times out of 100 it's three each at half time that's yeah. what I couldn't get over and couldn't get away from like England were so much the better side to the point where even if Ireland go on to win this Six Nations Championship which again thanks to uh, a lack of application of the bonus point rule um, in our understanding of appreciation perhaps <laughs> basically England not looking like they were bothered about getting yeah, a bonus point yeah, at the end um, Ireland are still in this championship but if they win it it's like you're clearly an inferior team yeah. presence to England on the basis of what we've mm. seen over the past 13 months on mm. the field like if, if I was if I was Eddie Jones I would be just as concerned as Andy Farrell that his team was incapable of putting Ireland away in that mm. first half because I thought it was I, so strange when their subs were coming off 55 minutes in yeah. like not like the game was won because the game was won but that the job was done mm. like to score their third try so with so much time left and not go on to get the bonus point and really the only opportunity the only opportunity they created after that was the one where Johnny May is probably offside and Robbie Henshaw probably um, tackles him off the ball mm. like that was it yeah. And it's, I don't know what the thinking was, because basically if they got the bonus point, then they could have knocked Ireland out of contention before they even, before Ireland even played their last game, because Ireland could only have got to 19 points. As tough as it would be, England could have then got to 20. 
so it, to me it just seemed really weird and then you get Eddie mm-hmm. Jones' comment that you know they could have declared at half time it's like well you couldn't have because there was still half a job yeah. to do which you then <laughs> didn't go on to do well let's move on a little bit to Schools Cup then um, before we go Jonathan you were at Wallace on Saturday morning to have a little look at uh, the perhaps favourites for the trophy and the beat in a skill in 1910 yes by far the game that I enjoyed the most out of my three this weekend <laughs> um, yeah, bizarre decision on my part to try and cover three games in a day and a half. Fair play to you, too. But no, you, you, you told me about your intentions, and I said, fair play to you, but inside <laughs> I was thinking, you're crazy. Yeah, it, it just wasn't smart. and I, 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 Like, I've got no excuse. I'm old enough and wise enough to know <laughs> that that was not a good idea, but I did it anyway. So did Wallace live up to their favourites tag? Enniskillen were really quite good, to be mm. honest. The game didn't play out the way that I would have expected it to play out, but... In a way, that made me feel more confident in what Wallace can do as a team because mm-hmm. they've got this array of Ulster schools talent, and you know we've talked about Nathan Doak, um, Carson as well, wing, but sorry, the back back three really good as well. Mm-hmm. But they like they really had to roll their sleeves up to get that result because like it was blowing an absolute gale. So Enniskillen had a bit of trouble with the kickoff scrum was scored off that and then the rest of the first half was basically all in a skill and it was a really interesting game to watch because mm-hmm. Wallace were so good at forcing turnovers through choke tackles which is something that we've sort of seen go out of the game but Ruben Crullers who is, seems to be a fantastic prospect at number 8 he's our captain he was our captain last year mm-hmm. and was captain of um, Ulster under 19 just a great exponent of the choke tackle in the same way that you know, you would have seen Ian Henderson at that level be. But the Enniskillen scrum kept forcing turnovers. So, like, Wallace were basically being awarded scrums for great defensive work, and then Enniskillen were coming back at them in the scrum. Mm-hmm. So it was a real sort of stalemate, just with Wallace coming up defensively in the end. And then two quick fire tries after the turn, and Enniskillen got two deserve tries um, later Fair on because like 19-0 would have been harsh on what they mm. put into the game but yeah I was, I was impressed with both sides to be honest mm-hmm. and I was at Methodic where they beat Sullivan 15-5 and must say wasn't all that impressed with Methodic I know the conditions were very difficult hard to really play any sort of flowing rugby in that but when I compare that to what I saw Royal School Armagh do against Campbell a couple of weeks before well, there wasn't really any comparison on it like mm. Despite those conditions that day, Armas forwards in the first half put up great defence playing into the wind, and then in the second half their backs just ran absolute red. Um, so I suppose the wind was going straight down the pitch that day, and it did give a clear advantage. Whereas on Saturday it was coming straight across the pitch at Perry Park, so you didn't have that sort of dynamic. But at the same time, um, it was really Sullivan's mistakes that like a few sloppy lineouts when they were well placed or just not getting the ball over the line a couple of occasions when they should have. Um, I know you could say, I suppose, that was down to good defence too, but Methody just didn't really... They lacked that X factor. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they can get on now against um, against Wallace in the semi-final because I suppose you haven't seen them once. You don't want to rate them off too much. Yeah, but you but compare it to what you know, we saw Methody do last year. Yeah, yeah. I went to their quarter-final at home last year as well. And on that day, it was just so obvious. You saw the likes of Ethan McElroy, and you're yeah. like, yeah, these guys are brilliant. Whereas and Saturday didn't have that. You know, I've not seen Armagh this year just because of Schools Cup clashing with um, a lot of Ireland games this year. But when you look at a team that 
hasn't done anything really in this competition for a long time. And then over the course of three years, three different teams, because there's a lot of player turnover there, I think, mm-hmm. are making an impact. There's clearly something going on, like, you know, Willie Falloon and Chris Parker um, clearly did a really good job there, yeah. um, as they are at um, City of Armagh, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so, yeah, there's um, they're clearly building, I suppose, as a as a programme, you could say, rather mm-hmm. than Absolutely. like an individual side this year. Yeah. And it's going to, yeah, it's... Really looking forward to the semi-finals, actually. Um, yeah. Been a while since I've been able to get to a non-semi-final or final game in this competition, so I really enjoyed yeah. Saturday. So the semi-finals see Arma play Inst on Tuesday the 3rd of March, and then Wallace play Methody on Wednesday the 4th, both at Kingspan Stadium, both at 2.30. Imagine we saw two provincial sides in the Schools Cup final. Be a while since that happened. We're still on track for a potential classic Methody Inst final. I know, we are. That's <laughs> the other side of it, yeah. yeah after all this. But, like, who knows? Wallace is my old school, so... You're firmly on their books. Let's go, Neil Hines, Black Arm Arm. looked after me that day I went to them. I even got to sit inside uh, and watch the match from comfort and warmth, which is not the usual school's cup experience. So. I know, there was definitely no comfort and warmth on Saturday <laughs> night. I was absolutely freezing. So that's about us for this week. We'll be back next week as usual, but until then, from Jonathan Bradley. Cheers, thank you. From Adam McKendrick. Cheers, guys. And from Gareth Hanna. Thanks for listening. The Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast with OpenReach, building the broadband network that connects us all. Check for ultra-fast, ultra-reliable full-fibre broadband at openreach.co.uk forward slash ni.